What's up everyone? This is Darius Kalbarczyk, co-founder of MG Poland, JS Poland and Angular Master the Dev. Welcome back to Angular Master Podcast. Together with Manfred Steyer, speaker, trainer, consultant, author from AngularArchitects.io, we discuss everything related to our favorite framework. Today we have some special guests from Dynatrace. They are both great software engineers. Cornelia Rauch and Thomas Gzell. Session will begin with Manfred questions. Hello. Hi. Yeah, Hello. I'm, I'm really excited that we have Cornelia and Thomas here today with us because uh, we know each other for years and for some times we uh, worked for the same company uh, some for some time, but not always at the same time. And so it's really a pleasure to interview both of you about how you use an X and Mono repos at Dynatrace, because that's also a big topic for us, isn't it? So let's get started with the first question. So perhaps uh, you can tell us a bit what you work on. Hi, <laughs> hello. Uh, so my name is Connie and Thomas and I are working for the same company, which was already mentioned is called Dynatrace. Um, the company was originally founded in Linz, which is in Austria. So we both are from Austria and um, the company is offering an all-in-one intelligence solution, which is all around monitoring and kind of doing all the things you usually don't get with traditional monitoring solutions. So like auto-deployment of um, single agent, discovery of entities up and down the stack, horizontal and vertical and whatever. And root course analyzes and, and so on, all the fancy things you can do about monitoring. And um, we in Graz do all the things that happening around this core product. So we call it business intelligence, meaning um, we help the company grow and continuously improve customer experience around the product. So what we are currently working on is improving our licensing system and making it easier for the customers to um, understand their licenses that they're currently having and also we're adding new features to the licenses that they can figure out what they need in their monitoring or what they don't need uh, in their monitoring or uh, software intelligence solution from Dynatrace. Awesome. So while I really recognize Dynatrace as one of the major vendors when it comes to this very topic, when it comes to tracing, you find uh, a lot of information on the Dynatrace websites on this. So, uh, Thomas, perhaps you want to give us some numbers about the software system you are building. Yeah, sure. Hi. Um... Regarding the numbers of our mono repository, um, I want to give you a short um, imagination of how big it actually is in, in at Dynatrace or in our department. Um, mainly, we started two years ago uh, with with our mono repository approach, and back then we only had two applications in there. But um, since we are a quite big department and we are teams spread over three um, three countries 
and um, um, have a lot of members in each team, the repository um, grow really fast. And, and in the meantime, we have uh, about 20 applications in there. So that means we have um, um, backend for frontends and, and frontend applications and services in there with about uh, 550 libraries that are shared across those um, 20 applications. From, um, that's quite a number, isn't it? Yeah, that's quite big, at, at least for, for us. I mean, there, there are for sure bigger repositories out there, but it's quite huge uh, for our situation. And yeah, um, from the contribution perspective, we have around 30 unique contributors each month uh, who are contributing to the monorepository. And these contributors are, as I said, spread across the world. Uh, they're sitting in Detroit, in Gdansk, and in Graz, and uh, they're producing uh, more than 150 commits per, per, per month. And um, this might not sound too much um, in comparison with other projects, but um, we have quite um, big PRs caused by quite big stories. Uh, but yeah, that's a thing we could work on. Um, but yeah, still, um, we have really a big amount of each month and uh, if you see it on a perspective of, of the physical amount of lines we have in the apps and lips for in our repository more than 400,000 lines of codes and uh, these lines of codes are spread across uh, nearly 8,000 files so um, yeah for us this is already a really big um, monorepository and we recently had fun. an intern doing some statistics for us so we we know the exact numbers all the time. Yeah. Oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah, so we have some fancy charts about them. Cool, cool. Intent-driven uh, BI, something like this. <laughs> exactly. So what does the application landscape look like? Yeah, from the landscape perspective, let's start uh, at the hosting. We have more or less our own um, Kubernetes cluster that is hosted in um, AWS. And we are leveraging some services from, from AWS like databases and load balancers and so on. But most of our services are hosted within our, um, our own cluster, our own Kubernetes cluster. And within this Kubernetes cluster, we have basically two big types of applications. On one hand, we have the applications for the Business logic. They are really responsible for the for the heavy business logic and are not reachable to the outside world. Or they are really encapsulated within um, this cluster. And on the other hand, we have uh, the applications that are part of our monorepository that provide access to these uh, microservices. We have a microservice architecture within the, the cluster and our services within the monorepository provide access to the services within the cluster. Mm -hmm. So we have, um, I already mentioned the uh, backend for frontend. We have um, all the way the, the backend for frontend pattern, um, which means for us that we have um, frontends or we mainly have frontends, so web applications, uh, where each web application has its own dedicated backend for frontend. And there are not only applications that have a frontend, there are also APIs in there. But at the end, the APIs are nothing else than a BFF for another client that may be um, a solution at the customer side. And 
Also this solution um, is considered as a kind of client like our own UIs. And um, at the end, this API is then a BFF for this client that is on the customer's, maybe anywhere on the customer's machine. And yeah, um, these BFFs, so the difference between the BFFs and the services that running within the cluster is basically that the BFFs, um, as I said, provide the access uh, to the to services within. They do abstract or the, the heavy um, business logic and API cores um, to the clients that are accessing all the data. And it's um, responsible for all the security-related stuff like um, authentication. And also it takes care about the um, um, abstracting the the heavy logic away, like like only providing the data that is really needed. So you can imagine if you need to access um, three or four services, you will get much more data back than than for the use case is actually needed. And yeah, that's that's basically how our applications are organized. Awesome, sounds very modern. So. Perhaps a critical question, but why did you choose for a mono repo? Yeah, that's. Um, let me go back in time a little bit. Um, we started about, or more than two years ago, um, we had several applications across several teams in uh, the same department, and it turned out that uh, we have a lot of code code duplications, for example, um, or the applications were using the same authentication. We had the same authentication server, same authentication strategy. And there were systems in the backend uh, which uh, always needed the same code. So more or less, the code was copied over. To get rid of this, um, we decided as a next step to have our own artifactory and starting to um, to, to deploy our libraries so that they can be shared across all the teams. But this um, comes with other downsides, like from now on, you, you had to care about versioning. Um, sometimes you had conflicts with third-party libraries because your app and the library used the same um, lib in, in different versions, and so on and so forth. And yeah, you had no really, not really an overview of which application is using which version of which library at the moment and so on. And it was difficult to update the libraries if you missed some, some updates in between and, and maybe you had multiple breaking changes. And yeah, that, that was no, not a really comfortable way to, to work um, together. And yeah, the next um, logical step was to, to give mono repositories a try. So we decided um, from the beginning to, to try a monorepository with the tooling from Norvell, um, so NX. And um, until now, this is the solution for us because now we don't need to care uh, anymore about the versioning of the libraries. We are always at the latest version with, with all the third-party libraries we have we know immediately if the API breaks somewhere, we have a lot of tests in place. So we are quite sure that everything works just fine, even after upgrading a library or extending a library or, or whatever. And um, it is not only an advantage from a library sharing perspective, but it's the monorepository was also an advantage for, for us as developers, because uh, from now on, 
it was quite easy to switch context between apps because you knew um, the, the patterns, you knew the coding guidelines, you knew the um, ESLint rules and so on. So it was quite a big advantage for us and, and it was um, easing our life, I would say. But of course, um, as Spider-Man already told us, with great powers comes also great responsibility. So um, a monorepository has not only advantages. Yeah. I can imagine, yeah. And I really feel you because I also made the experience that dealing with NBM libraries within one project can really be a nightmare. Versioning, yeah. version conflicts, distributing and so on. But uh, as you say, there are not only advantages, I guess there is also a heap of disadvantages. Yeah, Perhaps so... Bondi, you can tell us a bit about yeah. it. Of course I can. Um, yeah, so along the way from starting with one application, our monopaper with now uh, multiple applications and so many libraries, which we mentioned before, um, we were... With this scaling solution, we were facing some problems as well. And one of the biggest advantages that um, Thomas mentioned is uh, that you can share code with your peers and um, share libraries. But also there kind of lies also the, a huge disadvantage there because of what we were exper experiencing there, that it leads to um, blurred boundaries and less sense of ownership. And um, so, in theory, this should lead teams to code reviews, uh, reuse, and less code duplication, and more teams working on the same infrastructure, right? Um, but um, along the way, um, this also leads for us to tight coupling um, to some of the libraries, and sometimes it was not clear. To what, um, to what application a library belongs. And so it was hard um, sometimes defining boundaries and finding responsibilities to each team and hard, um, to handle, hard to handle this and introduce boundaries. So that was actually one thing we were struggling with. So defining boundaries between the libraries and actually seeing um, from the structure that we're having in the monopaper where which library belongs to. So that was quite hard in the beginning mm -hmm. because we also migrated some applications um, that were before um, living in their own repository to our monopaper repository and they did not kind of fit in in the structure that we were having and this was um, causing this kind of, of problems. Um, Yeah, which also goes hand in hand with another problem. New developers, which we were onboarding to the repository, had a hard time finding codes there and actually finding a common structure that they are used to because code was all over the place and there was no real way to find where you should place new libraries and what kind of uh, file structure the new library should be placed in. Mm. Um, so that, that was one of the big problems. Um, another big problem, which is quite common, is <laughs> updating dependencies, of course, um, that are shared. So um, this is kind of one thing 
needs to be handled um, on the organizational level and some communication. Um, I think um, Thomas can tell you more about this, how, how we handled that on an organization level to keep everybody informed if something is changing and um, keeping our code healthy and tell people what, um, what other code might be affected by updating those dependencies. And of course, updating dependencies also takes some additional effort to ensure that the code is still healthy, meaning running tests and building the application on every um, code change. Um, which brings me to another point which we were struggling with. Um, once the repository got bigger and bigger, we had a huge issue with build performance and we were running sometimes regularly into timeouts due to long builds and due to long running tests. And we also had to figure out how to resolve this because this was really a problem for months until we found like a real solution because turns out it was not just one problem. It was like multiple problems leading up to this. And um, yeah, last but not least, um, also, refactoring is kind of harder in a monorepo, and um, I mean, creating new libraries within a monorepo works like a charm, but um, refactoring can be hard, and keeping all files that are, are connected, like, like config files, keeping them in sync can be also quite a struggle with, with those huge repositories that we're dealing with. So I think, yeah, those are, were like the core problems that we were facing there. I see. Cool. So now let's switch to the solutions you found for those problems. You mentioned uh, you have to do something on the organizatorical level. That means you have to communicate with other people. Uh, what did you do for communication issues or against communication issues? Yeah, well, um I think this uh, depends on the team and how you are structured. But in our case, um, at the beginning of the monorepository, it was quite difficult because um, more or less everyone did whatever he wants within the monorepository and we needed to solve this issue somehow. And it was even more complicated uh, for us because we are living in different time zones. And, and yeah, we at first we were struggling struggling with that. But in the meantime, we found a mode to work uh, together with each other quite well. And um, we have basically one simple rule, and that is to that we are not or we should not uh, change anything that affects the developer or the behavior of the monorepo without uh, discussing this change with all the teams. And to discuss these changes, we have um, mainly two tools. So one is a discussion ticket. A discussion ticket is, is nothing else for us than a, a simple Jira ticket. Uh, and whenever a discussion ticket is created, every um, contributor or every developer um, for the monorepo is automatically um, pinged. And every developer has the chance to, to contribute to this discussion ticket. So mainly if you want to change something as a developer, for example, you decide to, you want to add a new linting rule or you want to change a new linting rule, you, you go and create such a discussion ticket. Everyone gets informed about that. And in the discussion ticket, you most probably will describe 
what you want to change, why you want to change it, and how does it help us. And uh, most of the time, you will also at the end um, for the discussion, at the end time for the discussion, most probably this will be uh, three, four days or maybe a week. But at the end of the discussion, Ticket, everyone had the chance to contribute. And if everyone agrees with the change, um, there's nothing that will prevent you to actually implement change. And if there are um, concerns about the change, you, um, in common sense, you will discuss that with the people that have um, some concerns about it. And this works really good for us because now you have a quite good documentation for, for decisions. And on the other hand, we have uh, meetings, bi-weekly meetings that are called um, monorepository board meetings um, where we discuss topics that are not, um, not really that relevant for, for single developers, uh, topics that are more about how to make bigger changes in libraries that are maybe not owned by a specific team. So how to, to distribute the workload uh, for, for the teams and so on, such similar topics. Mm -hmm. And of course, there are um, other meetings, occasionally meetings that occur whenever you want to spread knowledge. For example, if you introduced a new library, and you want to let the others know about that or when the others should should switch to the new library. And yeah, um, that's on common sense, some, some additional meetings. Mm -hmm. Cool. And yeah, this way to work uh, together works, at least at the meantime, just fine for us. Sure, there are situations where decisions are rushed, but yeah, that's, that happens not too often. Cool. Just to get it right, uh, this is for changes that affect others, like changing the API of a shared library or something like this. Yeah, exactly. Uh, introducing a linting rule or multiple linting rules that would also affect everybody. Okay. But if it just affects me, if it is just about implementing a feature, then I don't have to go through this process. Exactly, yeah. Then the other things should be defined more or less within the, the ticket you have to do anyway. So, Cool, cool. Sounds great. Yeah, sounds great. So another issue Connie reported before was issues with build times or CI performance in general. How did you deal with this? Yeah, this was actually a really, really big issue to us. Um, and it also started two years ago when we introduced the mono repository because back then we only had one app within our repository and everything worked smooth and just fine because yeah, you can't do many things wrong with just one little application and a handful of libraries. The build pipeline was very fast and, and it was okay back then. But as I said, um, we immediately uh, grow from amount of, Uh, from the perspective of developers and also applications in the monorepository. And um, so we, we ran very fast into problems in the build pipeline. Um, we, or the, let me say it that way, the builds got very slow while we, are, we were using a really big amount of hardware resources. So worst case scenario, so to say. And first, 
some of us thought that it's, yeah, okay, we have many apps in there and it's JavaScript, so, so it needs to be slow. And uh, we just aimed for more resources. We got them and the problem was solved for now. And then and, it happened again. Yeah, but <laughs> surprise, some weeks later, after onboarding some more applications and libraries and writing some more tests, we had the same issues as before. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm not really that into deep in our infrastructure, but the first problem we figured out was related to Docker in Docker. So on our build pipeline runs basically in a Docker container and um, our build, the single build steps are again executed in Docker containers within this Docker container. And uh, the toolings around uh, JavaScript and so on try to figure out how many processes they can do in parallel to make uh, things faster. And when they try to figure that out, they um, ask the operating system which CPU, for example, is available. And um, the, the CPU that was reported was not the, the CPU that was available in the Docker container, but it was the CPU that was available on the host. And this, this was a big CPU most of the times. And yeah, then the tooling, for example, the test runner, um, tried to, to start, I don't really have numbers, but let's say 10 threads in parallel, but the Docker container was only, only able to handle maybe two in parallel. And so the CPU um, had more to do with switching context and allocating RAM than it was actually able to perform the tasks it should perform. So the solution, uh, at least for us, maybe there are other solutions, but it worked fine for us, was to um, leverage the correct um, parameters for, for all the tools. So for the test runner, for the linting, for, for building the applications. And um, they all had uh, one parameter in common that um, was responsible for limiting the amount of workers that were started with um, single processes. Yeah, and that immediately freed up about 50% of mm -hmm. our hardware resources. And it also, at the same time, made our builds very, very much faster. Because now the, con the, the context switching has gone completely. So this watch was a huge improvement for us. But um, it was not more we have done. Because we then figured out that... Uh, even if an X provides something like a caching mechanism, um, we did not really leverage it because, as I said, we, we are using Docker containers and uh, we leverage every, every time the build is triggered a new Docker container. So there is no cache anymore. Luckily, there was a solution out there um, called NX Cloud Cache or NX Cloud is the name of the product, I guess. But uh, due to our uh, policy in the company, we were not allowed to use that cloud solution because we are not allowed to give data out of the company. So um, we had luck again. And at exactly this time, um, NX Private Cloud was, was introduced. And this was basically the same solution, but now in a Docker image, and you were able to host it on your own in your own company. And immediately, our builds were much more faster in average again. Of course, there are worst cases where you uh, touch some libraries that affect 
everything and then you cannot uh, approach the cache. But um, yeah, in average, we were about 40% uh, faster uh, overall with builds and tests and things. Wow. And yeah, 40%. Then, that's, that's really a cool number. Yeah, that was really, really a cool achievement for us. And that was not all because uh, we, we figured out that we had another problem. Cornelia mentioned it already. It had to do with the, the how we, we structured our libraries and how we forced the boundaries between libraries. Um, we had no rules in place for that. And, and um, we needed to refactor uh, basically our whole monorepository, the structure for the libraries and the applications um, to have a cleaner affected tree. So... Uh, we decided to um, to leverage all the, the patterns and X suggested, for example, with tag, tagging the libraries. And we also named um, the directories according to it and so on. And yeah, at the end, after really, really much work, uh, we were able to, to get a really clean um, affected tree and, and already gained um, another performance um, advantage by um, but because we now needed to build very less um, codes, was, very less libraries, and test yeah. and it. This was also renamed, and uh, this is also related to that structure and folder structure that we had. For for example, um, I can mention one library that we had that was prefix prefixed with an app, so it was app name slash um, dash types. And this was a library where you thought like, oh, that library belongs to this one app. And if I change it, I will trigger the effect of for this one application. But it turns out if you looked actually at the dependency tree of this library, um, it, it was affecting six application because there okay. were no boundaries enforced and wasn't really, people were just using it and, and not... Um, really looking what they were affecting with this. And every time somebody did the change in this types library, it was immediately affecting like six apps and um, 16 libraries, which is, yeah, um, crazy. Wow. wow. Coupling by incident or something like this. Someone did an auto import and now it's coupled. Yeah. So there is a reason why... Uh, the NX documentation suggests to to use boundary enforcement and to use the tagging mechanisms. Um, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, I would recommend it to to use it as from the very first day. Cool. And yeah, yeah. as you say, boundary uh, enforcements. Connie, can you tell us a bit about this and about how you uh, manage the issues with code organization? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I mentioned this one awesome example that we found. And actually, we had a few of those kinds of libraries where you just later on figured out that there are much more dependencies and um, this kind of spaghetti code, which was then affecting everything. And um, yeah, by this point, we already had something like a tagging strategy. So people were actually like using an X already and we had a tagging strategy. Um, but when you looked closer in the, uh, at this tagging strategy, it didn't really do what we wanted it to do. And 
for example, we were we were using um, we were using some decks, but we were not using all decks that um, Annex were, was offering us. For example, um, we were not using the decking mechanism called scopes and grouping folders. So that's what we were completely missing out. And introducing scopes and introducing scopes in the right way uh, helped us tremendously reducing um, those, those like cutting clear boundaries between applications and actually clearing up our folder structure. Um, so as I know, Manfred, you're a big fan of domain-driven design. Um, so we have taken a look at um, domain-driven design. Um, and of course, everybody knows about domain models and how it's just a simplification. So an interpretation of reality that abstracts aspects for solving a problem. Um, but we were actually looking closer at domain models and we realized domain models uh, are living in a context and the context actually is what is really important for domain models, but because depending on which kind of context its domain model is living in, it might mean something completely different. For example, resolutions in a different context can mean something completely different. So in one, for example, in one part it may mean like days and, and minutes, in another part it means like years, 10 years or something like this. Um, so we were looking at that context and what we were thinking uh, is that we can take this context as a scope and the context for us, for everybody, context can mean something different. And the context for us uh, is, for example, an application, um, a part of your code or a work of a particular team. So we actually took the part of the context quite loosely. And so we were defining our context like this, and we actually figured out if we um, take that context and also take it into an, um, in account for our folder structure, we're really getting a nice, nice folder structure. So what we did, we split up again in apps and libraries, and um, then we let um, the scope also um, define our folder structure. For example, you could have a library. Then you have the scope of the library, um, then type, and then the library name, and that makes up your path to your library. So, for example, um, you have a library which is called um, admin application, and um, this is a front-end library, and it has a dashboard, and it has a feature called adoption. So this would live then in, this has a scope of admin FA for front end and dashboard, because that's what it's scoped for. And then um, this would be the path. So it would be lib admin FA dashboard, then feature because it's a feature library and the uh, adoption because it's the name of the feature library. And so, that's what we were playing around with. And so we actually um, had our So we also had a nice folder structure where Thomas wrote a really, really nice tool to actually check if the folder structure is applied. So actually if people are placing 
um, the libraries according to the scopes. So we actually had a way to like enforce people of using those scopes and placing them into the right folders. And yeah, for shared libraries, we were um, a bit more loosely about it because for shared libraries, um, the scope is always shared and we decided for, for now to not introduce sub-scopes for shared because it just made it really messy. Um, um, if you have the need, of course, you can introduce subscopes there as well. But for now, um, it worked really, really fine for us. And um, yeah, so shared libraries are more um, a bit looser than other libraries defined. So yeah, and now it's also easier to find your way in the monoboard paper because you actually know what you are affecting if you're touching a library because you're already see what kind of scope you're affecting. Cool, cool. I really love this domain thinking, contexty, uh, a clean structure for your folders. I really love this. Cool. So, uh, Connie mentioned that there is a tool that keeps everything in sync. Uh, and this tool was written by Thomas. Thomas, can you tell us a bit about this and perhaps other tools? Yeah, sure. Um, the, basically, when we started um, with, with, whole, with the whole refactoring, we figured out that um, there is often the issue that uh, the path was wrongly named or a tag was missing. Or um, even if you work with monorepositories, you need a lot of boilerplate code. For example, you need to register libraries in and an and, uh, and XJSON file and the workspace JSON file and the chest config and so on and so forth. And uh, basically, there are tools, there are schematics provided by an X or Angular or whatever, but you cannot guarantee that everyone is using those tools. And so we had uh, sometimes the issue that, for example, the, the registration of a library was missing in the NX JSON file, or um, there was a wrongly named folder for, for one library or wrong, wrongly placed um, library in the folder structure. And um, what happened then is that it was not very easy to find out where the issue was because an X did not, at least back then, uh, did not give you a clear error message what's wrong. So you had to find out where is a special configuration missing or is there a configuration missing. And yeah, then we decided to that it would make sense to create a tool that basically checks the integrity of the whole workspace. And um, at the end, it was a command line tool written in TypeScript, which checks for several things. Like um, it will open all the JSON configuration file, pass the content, and it will check if um, every single library and application is also properly configured in the in the other um, JSON files, it will check if uh, the directory structure is consistent to the apps and to the text that were used. And it will also check, for example, if, um, if uh, there is a boundary enforcement rule configured for every tag this is, that is available and, and vice versa. So um, it will 
do the, the basic checks uh, for the monorepo, for the con for configuration within the monorepo repository that is needed to, to allow it to properly build, test, and lint. Otherwise, if we don't have these checks in place, uh, you will um, recognize very late. Maybe the, the linting will work, but uh, the build will fail because of configuration issue. And this tool will help you a lot with that. And finally, we um, integrated it into our Git hooks and also into our build pipeline. So whenever you are going to make a commit or um, even if you make a commit with minus minus no verify, um, at least the build pipeline will, will recognize problems with the configuration very early and won't waste your time or resources. So that's about that. Yeah, sounds good. That's also something I always like to mention, like, and it really fits to everything you've told me, like you need a process and also tooling when you want to go with a monorepo. Without both of them, uh, you will very likely not uh, be successful. Cool. We actually so, also wrote some schematics as well, the checks um, to help you creating those libraries with the right structure. Nice, nice. Cool. So let's assume you want to help someone who is starting with a monorepo. What would you recommend then? If you have an organization write monorepo or a piece of paper that has multiple applications in there, you always have to keep in mind that you need some resources for housekeeping and maintenance and um, for additional work like tooling or 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 creating the right linting rules, um, continuous integration, continuous deployment as well. That a lot of resources and a lot of time and effort goes in that as well. And it's not just getting advantages, also like figuring out how to deal with the disadvantages um, that come along with the monorepo. And I think the bigger your monorepo gets, the more you're feeling these disadvantages. We are quite mid-sized, I would say. We're not really, really big monorepo, but I think uh, along the way, the bigger you get, the, the more struggles you can have with this monorepo approach. Wow, yeah, good advice. So. Thanks for this. Um, thanks in general for all those uh, things you two told us. I think this is very valuable, this case study we've got from you today. We always say to add something to this, that community is, however, not only about tech, techniques or technology. It's also about other topics. And that's why Darek prepared some further questions for you yeah thank you so thank you so much for uh, for all these uh, great answers and i have uh, a few more non-technical questions like um first question is uh how the pandemic affect your work who is first cornelia um so yeah for me in the beginning it was really hard um, because I uh, started out working in this company just in October. 
so I was introduced to a complete new team and I didn't really have a good way to connect all of them. I still have one team member I never met. <laughs> so he never, and so I never saw him physically. Perhaps he doesn't uh, even exist. Uh, yeah, and maybe yeah. he's just a bot, so I don't know. Yeah. So, so sometimes it, it is really hard. And also um, we are heavily depending on Scrum and having all these Scrum meetings remotely is, I think, much more um, like more exhausting than it would be if they were in person. Um, so, yeah, this is kind of a struggle. But otherwise, sometimes I also feel I'm more productive when I'm working from home because you don't have all this distraction you would have in the company. So it's, um, yeah, there are two sides to this whole pandemic thing. So uh, in summary, you prefer work uh, remotely or stationary? I like I like both. I would I would really like to see the China trace goes forward with a policy that allows both working from home and also working in the company because I think both 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 kind of ways are valuable and have their down and upsides. Okay. It's a good mixture, I would say. Thomas, how about you? Yeah, I had a bit more luck than, than Cornelia because I uh, applied at Dynatrace before the pandemic and I was there for about four months um, until the first lockdown. So I had the chance to get to know the people um, in person. And in my opinion, this helped me a lot, especially when you are new in a company. It's good to get to know all the people you're working with. And Yeah, uh, once we were in, in, in the lockdown, I guess this heavily depends on the team, the people and the size of the team. But uh, the team I'm working in is quite small, I would say. We are um, about six developers, one team captain and so on. And it worked out quite good for us um, at home. And at Dynatrace, you need to know that you are um, often in contact with, with people from other offices like... Um, Gdansk or Detroit and so it has not changed that much because if you do a Zoom meeting in, in, the, in the office or if you do a Zoom meeting in the home office it's not that big difference so we were already used to Zoom meetings to have a lot of Zoom meetings and um, but yeah um, if I could decide I would say in the meantime I would prefer a mix of both Because I really like to, to have the flexibility at home, at the home office, especially if you have a family. But I also really appreciate it when I can talk to people to get together with a coffee and talk about several things which you would most likely not talk about uh, if you're at home. Or at least you, you won't make a meeting for, for everything and, and do a Zoom meeting, meeting for, this, for that. And like Connie said, I, I also think I'm a little bit more productive at home. At first, I, I had a little bit of fear or I felt a bit, bit guilty because I always thought that I, yeah, if you are at home, everyone thinks that you are doing nothing. But at exactly. the end, it turned out that you are doing a lot more of work than, than actually when you are in the company. Yeah, exactly. I feel the same. So... 
the only thing that's really yeah. missing is the is the fluorfunk, as we call it. So the gossip is missing at home. Okay. So, yeah, totally. <laughs> so this is the next. Mental. This is the next question. If hundred percent remote work possible in a long run, what would you miss the most? Gossip and coffee with colleagues, I guess. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's the same for me. Yeah. Also, also, there are a lot of information that you get when you're drinking coffee with colleagues that we would otherwise not get, which are also important to work. So it's exactly. not just gossip, so it's just also this. Yeah, um, it's, it's not that easy to spy other, other, other chats. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. We always should uh, see our work, our life uh, holistic. So it's not only work, it's also colleagues, it's also the chat, it's also gossip, it's a lot of things going on. And if we sit at home, we are alone. Of course, we are productive, but we are alone. Yeah, so both is good and both have some disadvantages. Also for me, yeah, but I totally agree with you. So uh, the last question is, uh, what one thing that our listeners should remember from this podcast? It's a hard question, I know it. Who will start? It's, it's a really difficult question, but in, in general, I think... Um, have fun with your solution and what you're doing. I think that's the most important thing. It's really, it's, it's really, if it's just a pain and you don't like working with the kind of solution you're having, it isn't probably wrong for you. So I think like fun, having fun at home or at work or with your code base, it's the most important thing. Yeah, Thomas, you want yeah. to say? Um, regarding to, to monorepositories and then X, I would strongly advise to follow or to read uh, the documentation exactly because a lot of pain we felt is was because uh, of not following strictly the suggestions or adopting it probably to our solutions. And um, yeah, like Connie said, it's it's every time important to have fun with your solution. So you should be satisfied and, and you should have fun working on it. You should like working with it. And yeah, then nothing can go wrong. Yeah, exactly. So thank you. Thank you so much for joining uh, today's podcast. It was a pleasure to host you. Thank you, uh, Thank you, thank you for having us. Thank you, Thomas. Well, thank uh, you so much. Yeah, thank you, Manfred, for hosting uh, thank you today. All. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so thank you so much and see you around.